Hello, and welcome to Imagine Me and Utena, a revolutionary girl Utena podcast. I'm Panda, I'm your host, and I'm here with my co-host Alice. How you doing, Alice? I am doing pretty good, actually. Today we're here with another Friends Like That episode where we talk to whoever we want about Utena or things related to Utena. And today we have on a guest. Their name is Amato. Hi, Amato. Hi, thanks for having me on. A friend you've never met. Well, I feel like everyone who comes on the podcast is my friend now. It's like Aww. a legally binding contract. Yeah, I mean, it's in the name. It's in podcast law, and if you violate podcast law, the McElroy brothers come to your house and arrest you. It's like a Faustian bargain, but like even less formal. <laughs> uh, so you are here because you are a friend of our friends, Yasha and Fauna from Empty Movement, and uh, you have been involved with the Utena fandom in a number of ways. So we'll start off by asking you, what's your history with Revolutionary Girl Utena? How'd you get into it? All that kind of good stuff. I think I got into Utena the same way I got into every defining anime of my life, which is there happened to be horrible quality RM files available um, of episodes online in the late 90s. Yeah, that sounds about right. The 90s were a, a wild west as far as anime was concerned. I don't know what your two's experience are, but were you part of that era of just like whatever you could get scraping off of the internet and, you know, episodes were only just now starting to be downloadable on various sites? I was born in the 90s, so ah. I was very briefly after that era in the getting whatever you could on VHS at your local Blockbuster or possibly like weird niche store in your town if you happen to have one or like a comic shop. No, no, I had that too. It was definitely like, I guess we'll watch A Wind Named Amnesia because Blockbuster has it. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it was really really spotty what you were able to acquire. And so I think somewhere I must have found, you know, since I'd run out of Ranma season one or whatever Sailor Moon I was able to acquire or Waze Cruise, because that was online. <laughs> I think I found RMs of episodes four, seven, and eight or something. It's like the first half of Mickey and maybe Jury and the the Curry, if I've got my numbering right. Oh, so you got uh, you got several Naname episodes, it seems. <laughs> Yeah, it was a strange introduction. I didn't even, you know, get the second half of the Mickey story originally. And oh, and these episodes didn't have the opening sequence, you know, to save file size, oh I'm sure. Oh my god. But they were really different from anything else I'd seen. And that was enough to make me buy the DVD, uh, the DVDs that had just come out at that time in about 99, the Rose Collection DVDs. That was the first 13 episodes, right? Yeah, and they were a good deal for the 90s. Like one of them had seven episodes, one of them had six. That was great. Usually you were like, <laughs> Four would be good. Three, you're like, I guess I'll buy it. Fine. Yeah, I I definitely remember like trying to rent anime and it, or like buy cartoons, and it's just like this is only four episodes. What am I supposed to do with this? Watch them over and over, I guess. Yeah. No, the that's so weird to me. Like I, I keep having to remember. Oh yeah, there was a way to watch anime that wasn't like YouTube. Yeah. Oh yeah, the days of YouTube where everything was uploaded into like five parts an episode. But you couldn't just watch whatever you wanted because like for example, at the time, at the specific time I got into Utena, the second season or more or less, you know, second third of the series had been announced for US distribution. 
but it wouldn't happen for a while yet. Like not for, I feel like another year or two or, you know, a couple years, it felt like that. So the respectable fan subber sites would not distribute VHSs of those episodes because they were going to come to the US, but they would distribute VHSs of the last third of the series. <laughs> and so I got to watch, for some reason, episodes 26 onward. You'd think it would have been 27, but Kodocha fan subs distributed 26 through 39. And the Black Rose arc, I got translated scripts of online, which really don't let you follow what's going on other than kind of broad strokes like Kozue and her brother have a messed up relationship kind of thing. I can't even imagine, like, because the first time I watched Utsuna was probably like, I mean, it was well after you could just go on the internet and find Utsuna. So, like, I got to watch it all in one go, and I can't, I can't even imagine what it was like to have to put together something as. Uh, my impulse is to say obtuse, but I'm not sure if that's right, the right word for Utsuna. But something like Utsuna, just from like random episodes, you're able to grab. Oh, yeah. And for the Black Rose arc, the only visuals I had were this AMV by someone named Kestrel that featured the Black Rose arc set to the song Everybody Wants to Rule the World, which I thought Incredible. was really good. Yeah, it was a good AMV. It's still I online. I think I'm in love. That sounds it, yeah. amazing. I've got a link here. I just found it on YouTube earlier. It's like, is it on YouTube? Someone yeah. uploaded it saying, I don't know who made this. It's Kestrel. Kestrel made it. Um, so fandom history. Oh, I, I'm all about like these weird little corners of fandom history. I really like this kind of stuff. And so, but anyway, the time I got into it, people like to tease me about like why I'm a like cis white guy who's heavily into Utana and got really involved in the fandom. And there aren't many of us. I, I'm straight. <laughs> Certainly like not many that have stuck around. But then again, it wasn't so weird back then because that was definitely the time when like I didn't necessarily realize Utana was as exceptional or strange or interesting as it was. I got into it at about the time when I was starting to distinguish that some anime was in fact better than others, and this grabbed <laughs> my attention. But a lot of like the fanfic writers, like the male anime fanfic writers back in the day, like Udno was just another series that, that was good, and they liked it, and they wrote about it, or like worked it in, but they were also writing about Bubblegum Crisis and, you know, Evangelion and crossing all of them over at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm kind of part of that generation. Whereas now, there's so much anime available that you don't usually accidentally wander into Udno you're kind of pointed in that direction for some specific reason or another. The only time you wander into Utena is when you've seen someone like reblog or retweet something about it and you don't have context for it. So then you go to track down what it is that this is fan art or like a reference to. Yeah, but even then you're following the people who are reblogging Utena. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you're not just watching every scrap of anime you can get into and then expounding from there. I kind of miss, like, being able to just, like, find anime mostly just by random chance. It was annoying, but also kind of, there's something weirdly nostalgically magical about that. How you didn't know it was going to be around the corner. Yeah, it was the sense of discovery. And, you know, people who wax nostalgic about the old anime scene, it's not about the actual what was available or even really the fandom itself. It's more just that it was a magical adventure and every little piece of information was a piece of the puzzle for a series you were following or whatever. But that's that's how I got into Utena originally, and it just sort of simmered for a while. And I feel like I, I sent a dream in to the old, you know, empty movement site because they were tracking that in, in high school at one point. Mm -hmm. And one way or another, I got on the sort of mailing list that Yasha made up when they were setting up the In the Rose Garden forum in 2006. And 
you know, she sent out an email being like, hey, anyone who might be interested, we're setting up a forum, please come join us, uh, basically. And I wasn't particularly active in that either. But then, you know, I, I still liked it. And I feel like I dropped in on there very occasionally. I'm, I'm not very good at online communities or contacting people or anything like that in general. But basically what happened for me in the fandom is that in 2009, I went to Japan on the JET program and had a whole lot of free time. And I had, you know, in the interim majored in basically Japanese, not that I'm very good at it, especially now. <laughs> so I, I started doing Let's Plays of the Utena Sega Saturn game on the In the Rose Garden forums. And that was the first time that anyone in the English speaking fandom had really been able to follow along with it. Wow. That would have been yeah, 2009 you, you, you mentioned that in your email and I just, it's kind of crazy that this was just like something that you decided to do on like a lark. Yeah. Well, I mean, why else would you do it? Yeah. I mean, fair. For Vana, maybe a sense of preservation. <laughs> I don't think it's the first thing I translated technically. I think I did a little Utena Dojinshi a little bit before that, which is probably up on um, Empty Movement somewhere too. I'm sure it's in the gallery somewhere. Yeah, but that was that was a big deal. It was like, it. I think it provided a breath of fresh air to the forums. And I translated other stuff after the Let's Plays, but none of them were really drawing the same amount of daily activity on the forums as they did. Like, in the larger sense, no one really cared about the light novels, but everyone cared about getting a look at the Utena game. It's, just, it's such a fascinating piece of the Utena canon because it's so... It's so weird to have this little, like, little side story, little story of someday revolution just in between the student council and Black Rose arcs. Yeah, I prefer the translation, someday my revolution will come, because I think that's a boss translation. That is cute. I love it. I love that. It, it's oh, not, it's not mine. I don't take credit for that. That's just one of the possible English translations that got thrown up there. I love it. I'm kind of reminded... The way that like you have the game of the light novels for Utena that they're there and it's weird because they're both kind of they fit to the canon of like the of Utena but also kind of not. And well, no, the, the light novels don't. They're just another continuity. Yeah, no, I mean not like the actual like continuity. I should say when I say canon, I should probably say more of the phenomenon of people who like Utena. Oh yeah, I I like think yeah. of them as apocrypha for sure. They remind me of I so I I really loved a sh a manga growing up called uh, Chibi Vampire. Oh, I read some Chibi Vampire. I, I love Chibi I Vampire. Seen... No, no, I don't know that one. But it had an anime that was called Karen, which was fifty percent great and fifty percent the worst thing I've ever seen. And there were light novels for that involving a character that only existed in the anime. And as far as I could tell, they were just never available in english or like no one cared about them mm -hmm. or and so they were always this like technically there is chibi vampire content out there for a series that i love that exists but it's only half real yeah it's like a it's, it's like a supposition more than it is a reality i feel like even for something semi-mainstream like say slayers that's you know based on a light novel series they tried translating a few of them and then they kind of stopped i think because there's like 30 of them it, I think light novels just tend to be kind of a hard sell, or at least they used to be. The market light might be better now. Light novels are just not, they don't, like, there's just not as much interest in them in English-speaking fandom. Like, if it's not a manga or an anime, like, most people are not really paying attention. Mm -hmm. That is changing, though. Yeah? Yeah, it seems like it is compared to, like, when I'm thinking of the original official Slayers 
like novel translations. I think I think now people more understand what they are and that they exist. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Goblin Slayer, the original novel, which by the way is extremely different in some very specific ways that make it better. <laughs> it's like really, really been successful. Like a lot of people have read that in English. Mm-hmm. That one, like what's his name? Uh, Reki, what's his name? This SAO guy. His original light novels did okay over here, but he's actually started doing the the reworks of the just going back and rewriting the entirety of Sword Art Online, and those actually pre- like premiered over here in America and did pretty well. Like, well, I mean, Sword Art Online is also like yeah. absurdly popular in English speaking yeah. fandom. Yeah, but like it, we're getting to the point where it is starting to be possible to actually get those get traction with light novels here. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I guess we can go to the, back to the Udena light novel specifically later, but in terms of the game, eventually what happened is that that had drawn enough attention that people tried to translate, you know, do game translation projects. And obviously that happened eventually. Mm-hmm. First, there was this person named Esper Knight. I, I guess I can say this guy. I'm pretty sure he was male. I was in contact with him, who got in touch with me about 2011. And, you know, he was working with the the data in the Saturn game. I don't know anything about programming or game anything but he tried mucking around with it and um, because he was working on the coding side i translated about half the script but that one fell through and then in 2015 this person named endless just sort of appeared magically on the in the rose garden forum saying like hey i'm interested in translating the utina game where you're doing the coding side of that anybody anybody interested and we're like yes of of course (laughs) and endless did some crazy stuff like for one thing, he took the half the script that I translated, and he took uh, the script that Ayu Oseki, who is another Utena fan online, had been working on translating, and her work covered almost the other half of the script. And he did all the editing work consolidating the two, and transferring her translations in the format we needed, and all that kind of thing. He wrote tools for inserting the English script into the Japanese game, which are still available if you download the translation. Like His tools are just sitting there. You can retranslate the game or replace everybody's words with baby talk if you want and then the game will run (laughs) in fact you can use that tool it'll tell you if like there's line break issues or whatever and be like oh you can't do this you need to have a shorter line in this specific place or whatever it's pretty amazing the amount of work he was willing to put in and i'm sorry i say he i'm not certain i'm not as certain as i'm with esper knight anyway it's amazing the amount of work that they were willing to put in given that they just sort of vanished off the face of the earth again afterwards you, you've met a fae of the internet. <laughs> Someone used a wish on Endless, yeah. Oh, that's incredible. I have not... I can't say that I have necessarily played the Utena game. I have watched a playthrough of it on YouTube, and I, Alice and I played it one year for, like... It was, like, our one-year anniversary of doing the podcast, so we, like, did a stream of it for, like, an hour or two, and then... Yasha did a stream of like the whole game and like I participated with her in the stream. <laughs> as What ending like, did she go for? It. I don't remember because I was really sleepy during the last episode and I ended up falling asleep. So I don't remember how it ended, but I'm sure either Yasha will hear this and tell me or I can ask her later. She's probably asleep right now. Fair enough. But I know that we joked about trying to do the the Akio route, but that's not going to happen because I don't want it. <laughs> oh, it's it's funny but unsatisfying. It, like all the bad endings, it just sort of stops. 
Uh, just like Akio. <laughs> no, Akio doesn't stop. That's like, oh. <laughs> no, but he is unsatisfying. Right. Yeah, that's the ending where you go in the Akio car and he's doing Akio talk at you and ignoring your answers and you have the potential to say things like, are you even listening to me? And he just ignores you and goes on with his metaphors. Oh, that, yeah, that's funny. Then you become a duelist and lose immediately. Yeah, you know, I listened to your episode about the Utena game. Yes. Before coming on. Your guest was honestly much more enthusiastic about the game than I am. Like, <laughs> well, they played like every route. So I think maybe by the end, it's uh, a sunken cost fallacy. Oh, are you talking about Jeff? Yeah, we're yeah. talking about Jeff. I mean, yeah, like that, like doing Let's Plays is, is kind of one of their things. So oh, sure. I think part of it was just like, when you do, like having done Let's Plays before, you have to get really invested in the experience of playing that game. Or else it becomes such a miserable experience to do a Let's Play. <laughs> well, yeah. Here's the thing about the Utena game. And by the way, like, I'm, I'm familiar with all of it, too. I, I did, like, the consolidating, revising, like, final translation pass and stuff. So I, I haven't technically played through all of it, but I'm familiar with it. Mm-hmm. The the production values are great. The care taken is great. The characterization is entirely voiced, which is amazing. Yeah. But the gameplay is super boring. Like, it's even boring for a light novel because 90% of the time it's like, who do you want to get points with? Yeah. And you'll be like, uh, I'm on the jury route, so jury. Okay, next choice. Who do you want to get points with? We may have done the jury, jury route. I feel like we <laughs> wanted to, for sure. At one point, we got an interaction with Mickey, and we were like, no! Mickey's one of the strengths, I feel like, because Mickey has a whole side event that you can unlock, and most of them don't. And the fact that you can get Kozua to push you down the stairs is, I think, an, a major accomplishment of the game. I think you're correct in that matter, for sure. I was so happy when we stumbled into that in one of the, the playthroughs we did on the forums. How do you feel about the story of the game? <laughs> um, I, I like it. I think it's cleverly done that it fits in, you know, neatly in between two of the episodes just before the castle where Eternity dwells. Mm-hmm. And that it kind of hints retroactively at some of the weird stuff at Otori. I feel like it has a few issues. It needed another couple passes. Probably, one of yeah. the issues is just that... The character comes, the main character comes across as really dumb quite a bit. It's like the the villain Chigusa can do a lot of really terrible stuff to you and you don't really react appropriately. And I mean, it's Utena, so people not reacting appropriately to things is kind of a, a main deal, but it just sort of like carries on without you being able to accomplish much for a while. And then there's the thing about Chigusa looking masculine, which the script hammers home several times. And the character designer just did not get that memo, I not feel like. It's very strange. And like when I was translating it, I was like, am I missing something here? Am I... But no, it's just like, oh, she looks kind of androgynous or, you know, man-like. And I, mean, I know gender and gender expression, it can be anything, but like you don't have to give her a corset if you're going for like people being confused about the gender assumptions they're making about her. Yeah, like I know everyone in Utena has long hair, but like hers is a very feminine like hairstyle and with the corset and like the outfit there's really not that much that is masculine about her (laughs) there's an earlier incarnation of her character design that you can find in the the guide to the game i think and she looks a little bit more like tokiko and i mean it's still not exactly you know screaming male presenting either but like it's it's a little bit more so i feel like I have a physical copy of the game, and I've looked through some of the little book, but I have not 
gone through all of it. I'll need I don't to... mean that game guide. I mean the official, you know, walkthrough game. Oh, oh, I gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I think that's where that sketch is. Okay. Anyway, no, the game's really enjoyable as an Udina fan, but the gameplay is the weakest part, I feel like. Yeah, I wish that there was more like a fun dueling kind of mini game or like <laughs> anything slightly more interesting. Have us make some curry, you know, <laughs> like in the I also translated at some point an interview with the writers in the official strategy guide. And there's all kinds of stuff they wanted to put in the game that they just ran out of, you know, time budget for. And oh, yeah. ex- an exploding curry whole scenario was one of the things that got the <sighs> chop. That would have been good. They wanted to. I believe it. it they also wanted great. you to find out that Sionji plays the ukulele mournfully at night, like busking out in the city. <laughs> Wait, what? Um, so there's a subplot in that game about the seven mysteries of the school, and only oh. one of them is relevant to the plot, but which is the you know the mysterious fencing hall that appears and disappears or whatever. But they mm-hmm. mention other ones, and one of them is the mournful ukulele. Where, like, at night you hear the sound of, you know, the ukulele playing and Wakaba gets, you know, very excited when she's describing it. And Uden's like, that doesn't sound very creepy. But <laughs> the writers said it was intended to be Sionji playing the ukulele. Incredible. I guess that's what he's doing when he's in his uh, denim on denim. <laughs> this is incredible. And I think I might, I think I might be a Sionji fan now. Now I'm not, I can't even, I can't even, like, joke like that. He's, I, lo- I, I love him, but I don't like him. Well, he's a terrible person, but he can be fun as a character sometimes. He's just, he's so dumb sometimes. And I just like, I feel very bad for him. He won my heart, I feel like, in the Nanami's Egg episode, where he's like standing outside camping. But like, he's probably feeling very satisfied that he's like roughing it outdoors. But in fact, he's standing next to a tent with a grill, frying eggs, wearing an apron. I like that he just picks an egg up off the ground and is like, hmm, guess I'm going to eat this. Right. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, the game. I feel like one of the other things that came out in your podcast episode about it was wondering how much B Papas was evol- involved in it. Yes. And basically none. I think uh. maybe the production guy was involved, but nobody cares about <laughs> him ever, unfortunately. I'm sure he did all kinds of incredibly essential work to make the show actually happen. Um, But the people involved in writing it were some of the other writers for the series who were not B-Papa's people. Like, Ikuhara doesn't seem to have had a hand in it or anything like that. Okay, yeah. It's kind of impressive, then, that the story is so... Maybe coherent's not the right word, but it, like, gels with the rest of, like, the way that other Utena storylines go. I mean, it probably shouldn't be a surprise. These... I, I can't find... The archive of In the Rose Garden is not working consistently for me right now because I, I found this information and posted it at some point on one of the and one of the Let's Plays. Oh, but okay. the these two writers were heavily involved. I feel like one of them like wrote episode thirty-eight or something like that. Like, okay. you know, there were a lot of people involved in that show who were not the main five or six or however many B Papa's people there were. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, they weren't just like picked up off the street. <laughs> well, I mean, you never know with like licensed adaptations and stuff like that. Yeah. You you mentioned in your email that you translated the scenario book, yeah. which is an earlier draft of the movie script. I we've talked quite a bit about the movie. I'm not sure I know very much about this. It exists. Um, okay. When the movie was in production, 
they seem to have put it out kind of as like a teaser of like, this is what we're working on, that sort of thing. And uh, what's his name? I don't know my B-Papa's members anymore. Um, let me see if it's here. Uh, Enokido? Yeah, Enokido wrote the opening. He's like, yeah, this is still in, still being worked on and don't take it as how the thing's going to be. Okay. Do. I would have thought that Yash and Vana would have had it on otori.new slash resources, but I don't see it. So it must just be buried somewhere in the forum archives. Um, I can get it for you if you want. It's 90% very, very close to what the movie would eventually be. But the remaining 10% are really, really interesting. Yeah? Yeah. Like, I, I did, like, the first three-fourths of that and, you know, posted them bit by bit on the forums, uh, I think, after I'd finished the game playthroughs and stuff and wanted to keep going with this weird apocrypha. And it's like there's a few issues in phrasing, changes in phrasing. It starts off with a chat between, like, Toga and someone, kind of like at the beginning of the movie manga and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. then during the final sequence, there's some stuff that's that's really fun. For example, just before the car wash scene, right? Mm-hmm. Utna and Anth- Utna goes up and meets Anthe up at the dueling arena in the final version of the movie. And she's like, now you can be prince of this world. Congratulations, or whatever. And that, they're attended to by a whole crowd of faceless students who seem to be a representation of the same thing that the cars will be later on. Like the, the you know, the million cars that burn with humanity's hatred or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like them. And they're referred to as Beelzebub, like, um by the script a couple of times, like, you know, a horde of flies, like in that same metaphor that the movie's using. Mm-hmm. And they kind of try to stage, like, if I'm remembering right, like a wedding kind of thing. And it's them that tear apart Utna and Anthe when Utna turns down, like, princely ship of the school, rather than a random car wash, you know, bursting up out of the ground. And I, I always thought it was really neat, like, imagery that they ended up not going with. That sounds really cool. Other neat imagery is that Anthe does the thing that everybody wants Anthe to do if they're like writing some cool fanfic or whatever, and she draws a sword out of her chest while she's driving Utana in order to like, you know, smash the windshield for some reason. I forget. But, you know, it's totally pointless and it doesn't actually work physically, but like it's really cool. Uh, it would have it would have looked cool, which was really one of the big uh one of the big priorities of the movie, I think, was looking cool as hell. Absolutely. And then the only other, like, cool thing in that final action... Well, yeah, it becomes more of an action sequence. Jury and Mickey get to, like, detach a sidecar on, like, the motorcycle that they're driving. That's The sidecar's full of explosives, and, like, Mickey clicks his stopwatch and it explodes. And I know it sounds like I'm making this up, but... Uh, that happened in an I earlier wish you draft could of the see script. my face right now. That is the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I could just be saying anything right now. And like, would you be able to really check? Because it doesn't look like it's... That does sound pretty wild, actually. <laughs> None of it would seem out of character for Ikuhara. Uh, I mean, Enokido, I feel like a lot of it. Well, I mean, just from an, like an ideas perspective. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I just want to make sure Enokido always gets enough credit. Oh, yes, absolutely. I just mean, like, you could tell me that, like, Ikuhara is about to make a show about blah, 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 blah. And I'd probably be like, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> anyway, the other thing that the that earlier draft does was it made Toga more important. And not in a way that I liked. <laughs> in what way? Well, in the, in the final movie, once Udna says goodbye to him in the elevator, he's gone from the movie. Mm-hmm. Which is 
fine and thematically it's good because she's saying like no i'm putting this behind me i'm you know moving forward i'm moving forward with anthony and this kind of stuff and uh he shows back up again in some flashbacks or ways it kind of ends on him in one way or another like i don't mean end on him like his smiling face in the sky i mean like in some sort of like flashback conversation line between him and Udna or something like that i wish i could get at this here we are this is some weird oh okay yeah here it is scenario book by yoji and okito earlier draft there's a chat down here under on uh, zencaster if you want to oh, paste yeah? that in there oh there we go that's the first page and i'm sorry me scrolling through this while we're talking is probably not the most engaging podcasting we could possibly be doing <laughs> that's okay. This is this is very interesting. Yeah, the very last thing is Efko and Eko speaking as Toga and Utana asking, you know, Toga being, isn't that, that enough? Let's be happy here. And Eko saying, you know, I really loved you. My feelings haven't changed, but I have to go. And there's no such thing as the ends of the world. If we keep going, the world will get that much bigger. That sort of thing. It's just that Toga didn't need to be involved in that. And in the end, he wasn't. That's just... Okay. Uh, here we go. I feel like it's really weird to end this movie on Toga and Utena, and I hope that's why they decided not to do that. I'm sure, but but here's the sidecar se- sequence as well. Is like, you know, they come in to provide a little relief as well to to Anthe while she's trying to drive away, right? Uh, kind of like in the the final movie, except they don't really do anything in the final movie. It says a motorcycle with a sidecar leaps down over the wall of an adjacent lane and drives alongside Anthe. Jury is driving and Mickey is riding in the sidecar. Mickey says, you can take the left bypass. Leave these guys to us. Anthony asks, why? And Jury says, if you have high aspirations, you'll find yourself in good company. Echoing an earlier line about duelists having high goals or whatever, right? Mickey, imitating Toga, gives a thumbs up and an uncharacteristic wink. Jury twists the grip and accelerates. The bike and sidecar speed up. Mickey says, okay. Mickey was doing some work with something down by his feet in the sidecar. Now he jumps onto the motorcycle, hanging on to Jury. The Beelzebubs close in on them from up ahead. Jury's hair is fluttering in the wind. She smiles fearlessly. She performs a bootleg turn. The sidecar breaks off from the motorcycle and goes plunging towards the Beelzebubs. The rose-marked sidecar comes into contact with the one in the lead. At the same time, Mickey clicks his stopwatch, and there's a rose-shaped explosion. Oh, that would have been so sick! <laughs> oh, a rose-shaped explosion? Kind of like how in oh, Evangelion, the, cool. the explosions are shaped like crosses for no reason. Yes! Yes! yes. God, that would be so cool. Oh, that sounds really fun. I love the movie, but oh, this is fascinating. It's a terrible <laughs> loss, I know. Oh, man. Yeah. So that's another thing I translated that basically no one cares about, but that I find fascinating. Oh, I think more people should care about it, but less people care about the movie than I think they should. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I kept the, the momentum going, you know, with kind of my engagement in the Utna fandom and translating. And did, knocked out the two light novels, which Yasha then later on kind of turned into nice-looking EPUBs. I'd like to say at this point, by the way, none of my translations are very good. I learned a lot about doing them while doing them, about doing translations in general. But my translations tend to be real stilted, kind of like you can tell that they're from Japanese. They're not particularly deft. I'm totally unprofessional. <laughs> and by the time I got out of the fandom, mostly from having small children in 2000, I mean, I guess... The last thing I did was the Utena game translation script. I knocked that out while I had a one-year-old. But other than that, by that time, other people who were better at Japanese had entered the Utena fandom, and I was far less necessary. And so, for example, the sequel manga, when they came out in 2017, like, people were on it. I barely participated. 
and only then for like the first or second of the four. And I feel like now there's kind of a new generation of, there would be a new generation of Utna translators if there was much left to translate, which there's not a whole lot left. Not really. There's some like Ikuhara ephemera, but not necessarily as much uh, Utna specific. It's all margin stuff, esoterica. This is that um, that audio tape of the characters talking to each other that was yeah. in like Animage or whatever. I've never even really listened to that one or, or really attempted it because translating audio is a pain. Yeah. Yeah, at least for me, compared to text, for example. Yeah, no, I, I can understand that for sure. And like there with like Japanese, so many sounds can mean so many different things. Oh, yeah. If you don't kind of understand the gist of the conversation, you can get lost. Yeah. Um, but what about the novels? Have you two tackled the light novels? We've thought about it, but we decided to move on to Yuri Kuma instead. <laughs> oh, you've missed your chance forever. Apparently. How do you feel about the light novels? I think they're pretty good. They were yeah? written by this guy Ichiro Okochi, who's like been involved in all kinds of anime stuff for writing. Lots of writing on shows like Razafon and Wolf's Reign that I haven't seen. Um, oh, Alice loves Wolf's Reign. What about Wolf's Reign, the best anime ever made? Yeah, that's right. Uh, he wrote the episode scripts, it seems. And so he's a good writer, and I think he does some interesting things more so in the second light novel than the first one, with kind of remixing the elements of Utena. Um, they, the worst part about the light novels is the Utena Toga subplot, which never even gets resolved because the light novels stopped being made, presumably because they didn't sell well enough, right? Mm-hmm. So he only got through like the Mickey book and the Sionji book. I've heard things about the Mickey book. It's fine. I prefer the Sanji book, mostly because it's Sanji and Wakaba, and Wakaba's great. I, I've heard that there's, like, canon Mickey Toga. Yeah, that's correct. It's not yeah. the strongest thing in that book. Tell us more about that, because I have referenced it a few times, but since I haven't read it, I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, to paraphrase, you know, like, that scene in episode five where, like, Toga is talking to Mickey about how, like, you gotta take what you want. He's, like, rolling uh, he's around shirtless. on the bed. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's supposed to be, like, maybe metaphorical or, like, just visual metaphor in mm-hmm. the anime. It's kind of like in the novel, he's trying to accomplish that same thing by banging Mickey. And Mickey, for some reason, goes along with this, and it's really not very well set up or explained or <laughs> resolved. Interesting. Uh, hmm. Okay. That, that part's yeah. not great. <laughs> and at the end, you know, in his postscript, he's like, oh, I bet you're pretty shocked at like this certain part. It's like, yeah, great. Con- congratulations. I-, I was shocked, but not in a great way. Oh, I love, I too love uh, gay sex for shock value. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the Sionji book. What is it about the Sionji book that you like? Oh, um, it builds up a relationship or teases a relationship between Sionji and Wakaba. But it's first season Sionji, right? It's not like, oh, down on his luck Sionji in the Black Rose arc. So it's coming at like a kind of relationship between two characters that is very high tension to a reader of Utena, mm-hmm. but from a completely different angle and kind of finding a different way to get them talking to each other and having some kind of chemistry and that sort of thing. And then it allows Sionji to totally be self-destructive and destroy his, you know, chance at normal happiness or success or whatever in very normal Sionji ways that you would expect him to. So it's kind of, it kind of draws some of the stuff from the castle where eternity dwells. Um, is that the name okay. of that episode? I think so. 
but it's very different also. And it's, it's kind of hard to describe. There's a sequence where Wakaba and Saonji run into each other at the supermarket, and he's trying to buy a gift for Anfi, and they sort of start talking to each other because Wakaba heavily criticizes his choice of gift, and, you know, then he turns it on her and asks her what she suggests, and the first thing out of her mouth is toothpaste, and then she's stuck in a hole and she has to justify it, and it's lots of really fun character work. There's <laughs> something that Wakaba would say, just immediately toothpaste. <laughs> I've got to say, translating Wakaba is a joy compared to the rest of these pretentious jerks in, like, Utena, because... She just has a lot of run-on sentences and saying things a normal way. She's adorable. I love her. <laughs> Translating Utena is also great because she also says things way more straightforwardly than anybody else. She's a little too dumb to participate in their word games. Yeah, it's great. If, if she wants to know why they're on a balcony, like in the game, she asks, why are we up on this balcony? And you're <laughs> done. You're done. That's an Utena line. I love it. Anyway, yeah, the novels are... I feel a little bit sad that he didn't get to continue because they just sort of do their own individual things and then stop in the two light novels. And I'm sure it would have come to more interesting, satisfying places if he'd been able to proceed a little bit. It's definitely not manga jury, but I, so I'm curious to see what he would have done with jury also. Uh, remind me how many of the light novels actually got made? Two. Okay, just the two then? <laughs> just the two. I couldn't remember if it was two or three. Yeah. Jury presumably would have been next. Yeah, that makes sense. Which is only a problem because it would have drawn out the freaking, like, Utena Toga Tsundere thing she has going on in those light novels. Oh, boy. Well, it's the same thing as in the anime where, like, you know, she's like, could he be my prince? And you, the viewer, are like, no. <laughs> he looks nothing like your prince. Don't you see the flashbacks? Except it's much more annoying when you're inside Utena's head for all that kind of stuff. Oh, I believe it. Uh, normally, we would have already asked this question, but who is your favorite character? I'm not sure I have one. That's a good question. Ooh. The only cosplay I've done was Mikage. Oh, that's fun. I like the black... Uh, the only Utena cosplay, I mean. Well, but I yeah. like the black rose arc more than I specifically like Mikage. Like, what's there to like about, <laughs> about that guy? Yeah, he's uh, he's interesting. Um... I feel like I appreciate the characters in the anime, like uh, Nanami and Saonji, who are terrible people, but also somehow are able to, by the end of the series, get maybe the best perspective on themselves and what's going on compared to some of the others. They're the only ones that really kind of develop any sort of like self-awareness. Right. Especially Nanami. Yeah, I don't. I did not appreciate Nanami as much. I feel like when I initially saw the series, but on rewatch, it's nice that she's all the way out there. And you know what? I did appreciate her to some extent, though, because there's you know in in season one, it's very effective that you have maybe too many episodes of Nanami being like, oh, she's really screwed up. And then <laughs> her episode, and it's like, oh, she's actually really screwed up. Like this is actually she has issues that she needs to deal with and by the end of the series she gets to at least make baby steps in the right direction mm -hmm. yeah i find uh when i'm trying to get people into utena i have to kind of like keep my mouth shut when they start talking about nanami because like people be like uh she's so mean she's so annoying and i felt that way too when i started but she's my favorite character and my impulse is to like want to jump in and defend her but i don't want to take like the I don't want to take the character arc experience away when I'm talking about her. I guess I also really like both Utena and Anthe. Utena, because I think it's a very unusual thing that the 
show does to make the main character, uh, I mean, can I just say dumber than the viewer? Like for <laughs> for the reason, for, like for specific reasons. It's like she has her worldview and she's choosing not to see some things. And like she yeah. doesn't think about other people in some ways that she should. And, you know, the the show knows all of that. And mm-hmm. so the fact that you can see a lot of things coming that Utna can't just sort of like helps the the suspense and the dread, I feel like, especially in the last part of the show. It's a, sort of an ongoing dramatic irony. Yeah. Utna gets so much mileage out of the feeling of dread created yeah. by the sort of the gap between the character and your perception. Like just so much mileage. I don't think I've watched an anime that gets that much mileage out of that because it's like 20 straight episodes of it <laughs> and then with anthe i feel like you know anthe being in the end the core character of the entire series and like message of the show and all this sort of thing i think that works really effectively too and i, I hear people complain about the ending sometimes and be like oh they don't explain anything but what i love about the ending is that it explains exactly enough mm-hmm. and it doesn't explain any more you don't need to know anything more about Anthony and Akio than what they tell you. And if you know that much, then it's perfectly, you know, it's a it's a great catharsis and culmination. Like you understand that Anthony's been stuck in and participating in this abusive relationship and taking it out on others in some sense for however amount of much amount of time, it doesn't matter. And that the core message of the show ends up being that like you can't save someone else, but you can be there for them and then they can save themselves, hopefully. Like, and that I think that's such a cool direction for the, for the message and the themes to end up going. And I really appreciate that it ends up being kind of about Anthe's choices. Like the very end of the show, the the victory is Anthe's. Yeah, it definitely would not have been as strong of a like emotional follow through if they had kind of let Utana come out on top in the end. That's more just like reinforcing the system that they were trying to tear down yeah for sure i guess what i'm saying is i like utana the series <laughs> that's your favorite character <laughs> and the characters i mean i wouldn't have called it that but like all ikuhara series feel like the setting and the milu itself is almost the kind of character so i guess it works yeah that's it's true. like when people talk about movies set in New York and they're like, it's like New York is its own character. <laughs> There's a, are you familiar with Kyle Kelgren? No. I am, um, yes. Kyle Kelgren's a really great YouTuber. Like, I recommend. He does a lot of, like, uh, film stuff. Isn't it uh, Browse Held High? Or yes, Browse Held High. Okay. Um, he, did a, he did a video on um, Washington, D.C. never plays itself about how, like, sometimes a setting can almost become a sort of character and how the iconic parts of that setting or that of that milieu can approach character status in our minds when repeated. And Utsu really does that because like Utsu as well as Irikuma both have that Suspiria callback mm-hmm. that's pervasive to the point of like Otori is basically a character. Yeah. I think that's how it works. I think that's why it works in the series for like the hints that Otori is kind of a separate sort of world or sort of pocket universe. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly not that sealed off, but like it's got its own reality. And, you know, by the time that starts coming out, you're like, yeah, I accept that for sure. Clearly, you know, this reality that they're in is just a little bit not normal. I kind of like to think of it as like, there's a bubble 
And then you know how sometimes like a smaller bubble will be like on the surface of the other bubble and getting out of Otori is Anthe and Utena breaking through the small bubble to be in the big bubble. It's not a perfect metaphor because if they broke it, then the, the bubble would pop. But that's how I feel about like, I, I feel like Otori is connected to like, quote unquote, the real world, whatever that means in the context of Utena, except it's just sort of like, you can transgress, but most don't. <laughs> if I can shift topics slightly or, you know, of move off of that. Of course. It's making me think about fan fiction. Yes, you do a fan fiction podcast. I do, yeah. We do the Retro Fanfic Retrospective podcast, and I guess I'm the producer because I'm the one who convinced a couple of my friends to do it, and I decide on what we read and that sort of thing. Yep, that makes you the producer. Those are the rules. All right, so I'm the producer. I'm just hearing about this. This is new to me. No, we've been doing it for a couple of years. We've got like 100 episodes uh, coming, or 100 official episode is coming up soon. Yasha was on your podcast also, wasn't she? Yasha and Vana were on together, yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But I'm thinking about a fanfic that you two covered because you did an Archimage episode, right? We sure did. And then we also, we talked to yeah. uh, we talked to Jude. Oh, wait. Yeah. Talked to who? Uh, wait, wasn't Archimage the one that uh, Jude McLaughlin wrote? No, you're thinking of... No, she wrote the other one. Uh, the other okay, one. You're yeah. thinking of... I'm blanking. The other really big, long one. Yeah, it because we did two of them. Yeah. And- Archimage is all is Alan Harnum, and I feel like I, I haven't reread it recently, and I feel like either Yasha or Vana had some kind of withering disdain for it. But that was definitely Yasha because I don't re- even remember if Vana was on that episode. It was probably Yasha, but I feel like what that fanfic did really well for me, and you know, I read it back in the day when I was like, you know, into anime fanfiction originally, and and Utena and that sort of thing. What it did really well was that sense of dread. And especially yes. that dread in re-encroaching in the world of Otori Academy. Like, clearly it's a bad idea to get anywhere near it. But it's not as if it's like a bubble with like, I mean, not a not a literal bubble with like a wall that you're passing. It's like, now I'm in Otori. It's more like it's got some kind of gravity and you really don't want to get within that gravity lest it suck you in. I don't remember if I brought that up or not. But yeah, like, that was the thing I kind of liked about it too was for, for all of its other stuff, like... It got okay, the uh, of Otori sorry. as oh. Alice, real quick. Um Archimage was Jude McLaughlin. It was um Oh geez, Jacquemart. It was Jacquemart that was Harnum. Oh, I'm right. totally confused. Yes. I wanted to make sure that we established that so that I didn't get any emails. I'm thinking of Jacquemart. Yes. Yeah, yeah Jacquemart. Jacquemart did that thing with like the encroaching dread, but also like the Otori as a kind of Otori as a uh state of mind. Yeah. Which is simultaneously Really, really bad, but also weirdly alluring. Mm-hmm. It w- it is kind of the best part of that of that fic. Like it's so cool. That's what stays with me. The author did a riff on the sequence. I mean, I-, I say this if people have seen this. Have you seen the second Ursei Yatsura movie, the one directed by Mamoru Oshii, Beautiful Dreamer? I have no idea what those, any of those words mean. I okay. I am familiar with it, but I have not seen it. There's a really creepy sequence in there with one of the characters in a taxi talking to the taxi driver and slowly realize that the taxi driver is part of like this weird creepiness that's going on in the world right now. And they're saying things they shouldn't and sort of confronts them about it. And Alan Harnum in Jacquemart, not Archimage, does a riff on that with, I think, Utenai in the taxi and it's the shadow girls driving. 
and oh, like they invite, and, and they invite her to be Deco, or they say like, you could have been Deco, calling back to that time when they invite her to join the drama club. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're saying like, if you'd done that, you would have been free of all this and you've been outside the narrative. And it's super creepy and it's a great, I love that scene. Oh, wow. That's a neat reference. <laughs> that actually is really cool. I do like that. But he explains why there's no Deco and it like calls back to that only time you physically see the shadow girls in the series and all that kind of stuff. You said that was an Urusei Yatsuba movie, right? Yeah, the second one, which is the best one and the least like Urusei Yatsura. Alice, are you familiar with Lum? Lum? I don't know how her name is pronounced. but um, I, I always like, hear Lum in English. Uh, she's like an anime girl in like a tiger print leotard, and she's got like yeah, teal yeah. colored hair. Wait, wasn't that that really old manga that like, that's yes. where we get, everybody draws like yokai that way because of her? Probably. Maybe. It's like proto Inuyasha look. Yeah, I remember that. Well, yeah, because yeah, it's a Rumiko Takahashi, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was her first big hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what that's what I we're know. referring to is the second movie the of that. The first two theatrical movies were directed by Mamoru Oshii, of all people, like Ghost in the Shell guy. Yeah. No, I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> in, in the first movie, he apparently kind of like had to do the normal Urusa Yatsura thing, and he wasn't very happy about it. So the second one, he was like, look, I'm taking this my own direction. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lot more like, uh, have you seen the movie Dark City? Yes. It's basically Dark City directed by Mamoru Oshii with the Ursa Yatsura cast, and it's great. Oh, that's fun. I should definitely check that out. I am I have a passing familiarity with that series, but I have not actually like dove into it. Uh, I mean, you don't necessarily have to, but I do recommend that one movie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, where were we? we? I was talking about fan works. And, yes, yeah, fan works. The, the podcast that we do is about old fan fiction and that's all that's like the entirety well no that's but that's not the entirety of it my qualifications are we do a book club about fan works that are old and that i have some reason to think are good because we're not trying to pick on bad stuff yeah and uh you know old at this point it's always been kind of fuzzy but i'm like 2005 or before basically it's just like when i stopped reading fan fiction you know originally as a young yeah. fan and but we go way earlier than that like we did we done stuff from the late 1900s or early 20th century as well that you know people put out published as books or whatever that's awesome i'm trying to think of what i would know as quote-unquote fan fiction from the early 1900s and all i can think about is lewis c.s lewis's space trilogy like what else would you what else would be there oh oh, all kinds of stuff depends on how far back you want to go we did the oldest thing we've done at this point is called an old alice in the new sorry a new alice in the old wonderland Oh, I think I've heard of that. It's just an unauthorized Alice in Wonderland sequel that someone published in America. Yeah, I feel like I read like uh, an article about that several years ago or something. Oh, I have heard this. I thought Lewis Carroll wrote this. No, no, 1895. It was written by an American oh, like mother no. and daughter team. That is actually really interesting. Yeah. Huh. And then, you know, the Arsene Lupin stories, like uh, not Lupin yeah. III, his grandfather. Mm-hmm. The Arsene Lupin author whose name is escaping me at the moment, that French author. Something like the eighth Arsene Lupin story or something is Arsene Lupin versus Sherlock Holmes. And what's his name? The author of Sherlock Holmes got very annoyed at it and basically sent a cease and desist letter. But it was just him deciding, I will use the character Sherlock Holmes in my writing. And that's fan fiction in my book. Yeah, definitely. In later Arsene Lupin stories, his name got changed to like Hermlock Shears or something like that. That's funny. But the first story, it was just flat out Sherlock Holmes. Oh, that's great. I had no idea. Yeah. And on the show, because myself and one of my co-hosts, Tori, 
are in particular really big Utena fans. We've done probably more Utena fan works than we should. Like we've done oh, three, yeah, we've done like three episodes on Star Trek fanfic and three episodes on Utena, and also like a series of another three episodes where we played through the Utena text adventure game that Satirize uh, made some years back. Oh, fun! Which I also recommend, by the way. I I have not uh, I have not looked into that at all. It's totally obscure. I'm probably the only person still talking about it. <laughs> but he posted on the In the Rose Garden forums, and you know it's a text adventure game, and you are playing. A new transfer who is obsessed with jury and trying to seduce her by any means necessary, which okay, this notory means like you have to be a horrible person to beat that game in terms of the things you're doing. Oh, that sounds fun. You bond with Toga fairly early on in the game and you know he helps you out. So that that tells you where you stand on the being a good person spectrum. Oh my god. Oh, this sounds great. It I can see Toga befriending you if you were a good person. If it would abuse him or you were useful. <laughs> you bond with him over both using the same book of bad pickup lines, actually. Amazing. Uh, it's oh, really great. Pickup artist Toga is real. The first thing, one of the first items you pick up in that game is a book of bad pickup lines, after which you have the command seduce anybody. You know, like anybody you're talking to, you can try to seduce them, which involves using a bad pickup line. And Okay, say bad pickup line. Like... Is the character you're playing aware that they are bad? Is this like an ironic thing? Like a sort um, of like self-aware no. ironic art, performance art? Or is it like they genuinely think these are great? I think it's more the latter. They seem fairly earnest. That's even better. <laughs> well, the game's called Miracles Never Cease. And if you can't find oh a copy God. of it, I'll send you a copy. But we did a playthrough of it, you know, just reading it out loud on the podcast. And it's not the best, it probably wasn't the best idea, because that's still not great podcasting content. <laughs> uh, more people need to know about it. I love signal boosting obscure fan works. And I'll try to find you a link here. Would you like to signal boost any other obscure fan works? I mean, I can talk about a few obscure fan works that I like that, you know, no yeah. one... No one else. Sometimes we do like to ask, is there anything like fandom wise, like Utena fandom wise that you would like to to boost or bring attention to? So if you have some some recommendations that or uh, at least stuff that you just want to talk about, like feel free. Well, first, let me emphasize that you should definitely go listen to our podcast. And we've got multiple yes. Utena episodes. And our podcast is Retro Fanfic Retrospective. The website is just, well, the, the short link is bit.ly slash retro fanfic. And that takes you to our Podbean site or whatever. Nice. But yes, Miracles Never Cease is a text adventure game by Satirize. And I think you put down like 2007, 2000, maybe 2009, late, probably later than I think. But he was a moderator who was not Geo or Yasha for uh, many years on the forums. And he's, mm -hmm. you know, he helped out the fandom a lot like that. There's also, let's see, there's an old, okay, do you remember the like late 90s, early 2000s anime fan scene where people would produce parody fan dubs of anime? Yes. You're like, we all remember that happening? Yeah, uh, unabridged a lot of times. Well, or or heavily edited sometimes. Yes. Um, like, you do abridged stuff? Yeah. This is way pre-abridged series, but things like, what was the Bad Evangelion one that we talked about? Uh, Redeath or Fast Food Freedom Fighters was a famous one, that sort of thing. Is this where the Kekiku means plan thing comes from? Probably No, I not. think that was like an earnest attempt. That was an actual title. fan sub of uh, Death oh, Note. Yeah. That was for real. Yeah, yeah that was for real. Oh, bless them. But 
some, quote, studio, unquote, which basically at that time meant you and your friends in college in the anime club. <laughs> a group called Best Fishes did a parody fan dub of Utena episode three, The Night of the Ball. Oh, good. Titled Dance Dance Revolution. <laughs> that's so good. Which already wow. justifies the existence. Like, that's a oh, great yeah, name. Oh, that's so good. That Some people put a foot in the door with the, with the title. That just, like, swung it open. Oh, yeah. And the only way to get it back in the time, there's a trailer in like an audio play, like parody thing called Sailor Moon Stupid that I listened to back in the day. But the only way to get it was to send off to them for a copy of the CD. And you know, it was a CD with like an AVI on it and also like a script with commentary and stuff. And at HTML-based navigation and extras and stuff. And oh, like, incredible. it's not that the fan dub itself is great, though it has its moments. It's just that like, I don't know, it, there's something about this group of fans putting all this work in back in the day and distributing it in such a like tiny niche sort of way that makes me want to like drag these back out and have people experience them again. Yes, definitely. I feel like more people need to be familiar with like older fan works because like Utsuna fan works from like the early 2000s are such a time capsule. <laughs> I don't remember much about it anymore, but I remember they gave Anthe the dub Naru voice from Sailor Moon, like the heavy, heavy, like oh, Brooklyn great. accent. Oh, love it. <laughs> I remember they gave Nanami a like heavy Russian accent, like she's Natasha from Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh, that's good. And I remember a few just random lines that still stick with me. Like in the student council meeting, Mickey clicks his stopwatch and says, every time a stopwatch clicks, an angel gets its wings. And it's like never referenced again. Oh, that's so good. It, it's great because, like, it has no context in the series originally. So just, like, giving it a line, referencing it. Yeah. Anyway, fun stuff. Well, it could have it could have meant something. It could have set off a bomb. Yeah, according to Ikuhara in some interview when he didn't feel like saying anything, he was like, Mickey's stopwatch holds all the mysteries of creation or something. Yeah, that is exactly what he said. <laughs> oh, I love it. That man changes his mind about what Utena means uh, from moment to moment. Well, he just doesn't feel any compulsion to tell you anything about what he's thinking. Exactly. Which yeah. is why most of the uh, listeners were recording this the day of the uh, panel with Ikuhara and Saito that happened earlier this morning. And most of the questions were pretty softball. But they answered one from little old me. And that was great. I ran around my house. I told both my roommates. I woke up my wife. I called three of my friends, one of whom was Alice, but who did not answer. I almost called my mom, but decided I didn't want to have to explain all of the context in which everything was happening. Uh, and then I calmed down. <laughs> Panda, you realize now, because of the way that, like, it We've got, like, five followers. meta modern he is, you are now officially a part of the wider Ikuhara experience. We are in the Ikuhara extended universe. <laughs> well, you need, to, you need to say the question on air. You need to say what they, oh, yes, of course. What they answered. The question was, uh, what is your favorite kind of tea? And Ikuhara, of course, said that his was Earl Grey because I guess now I've been personally trolled by Kuniiko Ikuhara. And Saito said that her favorite was... It was it was like a special kind of matcha blend. I retweeted it earlier. It was uh matcha gen matcha. Yeah. Which is like a a combination tea. It's like a Japanese brand and huh. 
I'm just excited to be included. (laughs) (laughs) You told me Earl Grey and all I could think about in my head, like I was really drowsy when we were having this conversation. I fell asleep in the middle of it. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember like having this really vivid image of um, Ikuhara like in full next generation um, Starfleet uniform, just ordering Earl Grey hot. <laughs> like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. And then immediately passing out because it was very early morning and then on the Saturday. Most mm. of the questions were pretty good, and it confirmed that Ikahara is working on a new anime. So we will at some point find out what evil will be unleashed upon us. I live in fear every day. Do you have any other uh fan works that you would like to boost? Depends on what you mean by fans, I guess. I guess I kind of want to see what you think of various other incredibly obscure apocrypha or whether they've, you know, run into, whether you've run into them or not. Oh, sure, please. Have you run into the summary that exists of the second musical? Yes, we did an episode about that. Oh, did you? Is that the one with the zombies? Yes. Yes, we did an episode about it a couple of years ago. This was before I even met Yasha and Vana, and I would just occasionally find things on old In the Rose Garden threads and use them as part of the episode. And God, I... I apparently recently some photos have been going around of like, like very limited photos of some of the stuff from that show, but Oh man, it sounds like it was wild. I, uh, have you, have you seen any of the newer musicals? I still haven't, which is just because for one thing, I barely watch anything anymore. And partly it's like, I don't really want to watch it myself and I haven't been able to sit in on any of the kind of, public airings i yeah. like I need to watch that with other utina fans at some point oh it's, but, it's a great experience I, mean, I, I want to i was one of the things i was way into back in the day were the old sailor moon musicals also oh i love the sailor moon musicals mm-hmm. i got to see the theater airing of the last new one but... oh i got to see that one too i think it was uh what was the name of that one uh they're all weird names in french the f- movement finale or something yeah that's probably it something like that abby is writing in as we speak to tell me what uh, <laughs> musical name i can't remember but uh yeah oh it's so good i love musicals <laughs> were you were you around when the when that like summary like surfaced no in fact i wasn't aware of it i tried to start translating it myself from the same source and then someone was oh, like yeah? oh, someone translated that years ago I was like, oh, okay. No need for that. (laughs) Let's see, other very strange things I've translated. You wouldn't know the manga and anime Kochikame, right? The name sounds familiar. It's super, super long running in Japan. It's just a gag manga that has gone on forever about police officers. Um, No, I I guess maybe I'm not familiar. Okay. It's called Kochida Katsushikaku Kameyari Koen Mae Hashujitsujo or something. Hashutsujo? Yeah, of course, Hashutsujo. Anyway, the author was a fan of Utena when it came out, and he wrote a parody of Utena. I don't know if that's the right word. A chapter heavily referencing Utena. Hmm. And I translated that also. I, I hesitate to link you to it because it the copy that I found of the visuals of the manga pages was really low quality. And then I basically translated with like MS Paint because I didn't know how to use any other like, you know, visual tools. So it <laughs> looks real bad. Oh, but it's that's just, cute. it's one of these very strange things that exists. And it's still on the Otori.new, what do you call it? 
The gallery? The gallery, yeah. Place that's with pictures. Fun. Um that's probably about as obscure as things get. Unless we have anything else that we would like to talk about before we close out. Hmm. I think the only the, the only questions I would I had ended up getting answered before I could actually ask them. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm just too good at the conversation thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one last question then from me: What is your which is your favorite arc in Revolutionary Girl Utah? Probably Apocalypse. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say Black Rose, but that's the best. Uh, sorry, was that a, uh, like you agree or like uh, that's the wrong answer? No, Black Rose is the best. Black Rose <laughs> is really good, but I feel like thinking of the strength of episodes like The Tale of the Rose, yeah. um, it's hard for me not to say that's my favorite. I feel like the Black Rose arc has a few more missteps of just episodes that like are fine, but they're not great. It's like, what? It, like, I feel oh, like yeah. the problem with the Black Rose arc is... It reaches its peak with Wakaba. Yeah, and then, that's and then you've true. Got, then you've got a couple more Black Rose duelists, and you're like, okay, sure, Keiko, fine. <laughs> this is not as powerful as that, you know, Wakaba one. Yeah, the Black Rose saga musical cut out some of the duelists, so you really only have like Kozue and Wakaba, and uh, I mean, those are the high points. To be fair, who yeah. am I missing? There's Agreed. one more. Shiori. Shiori. Yes, of course, Shiori. And then you get to uh, skip, what's his name? The character I refuse to remember the name of. Uh, Mitsuru. Yeah, that guy who doesn't have a name. (laughs) You usually call him Manservant, Chan. Tsubabuki. Tsubabuki's okay, I guess. He's fine, I Um, guess. I liked him a lot better before there was the Black Rose episode about him. (laughs) One of the most awkward experiences I've ever had doing this podcast is me sitting there being like, this is really horny. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Not my favorite. And I guess I should also <laughs> specify that when I say apocalypse arc, I mean as if you're counting it distinct from the car arc, right? Like, yes. Because that's also just fine. Yeah. It's like the Kozue episode there is not as good as the Kozue Black Rose arc episode. The Sionji episode is just sort of like setting things up. It's not even great for Sionji. And <laughs> fuck Ruka. So, yes. it's, but the Nanami stuff in that arc is really good. Yes, it is. All right. Well, if that's if that's all we've got, that's the end of the episode. So listeners, if you would like to follow this podcast on Twitter.com, you could do that at UntanaCast. And if you would like to follow me on Twitter, you could do that at MPandanata. Alice, where can people find you online? They can find me online at uh, Lyrewolf, L-Y-R-E-W-U-O-F. And Amato, where can people find you and the things that you do online should you wish to be found? Absolutely. You can find our podcast, Retro Fanfic Retrospective, which contains a not small amount of Utana content by this point, at bit.ly slash retrofanfic. We're also on Twitter at Retrofanfic and a few other places, like Reddit at Fanfic Retrospective. We've got an Instagram at Retrofanfic, and usually there's fan art for, you know, any episode that we do, which means that you can see fan art of females presenting Sionji from the episode we did Ever After. It's there oh, on the Instagram God. somewhere. And we've got a email address also, which is retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com. We also have an email address that is imagineme and utina at gmail.com. If you have any feedback or 
want to come on an episode or just want to send me a picture of your cat, you can do that at imaginemeandutonet@gmail.com. We also have a Patreon. You can find that anywhere you can find us on the web. And we recently bypassed the next goal on the Patreon. So we will be doing another episode of the Big Eyes, Small Mouth, Revolutionary Girl Utena campaign. And the next goal is for us to get to do an episode where Alice makes me watch something. So if uh, if anybody wants to throw in a few dollars to give Alice the privilege to finally force me to do a thing, since I have been forcing her to do things for years, that is where you can do that. If it sweetens the pot any, I am deciding between making her watch my other favorite anime, one of my favorite animes, Sound of the Sky, Sora no Woto, or making her watch at least a couple episodes of Girls on the Panzer. Whichever one of those <laughs> seems like it'd be more viscerally satisfying for me at the time. <laughs> and um, that's that's it. That's our we. Those are our plugs. And that is this is the end of the episode. So revolutionize the world, everybody. See you later. Mm-hmm.